Okay, if you got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it? Uh, if not, the words will appear behind me on the screen. Uh, we're reading today from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. So we are still, uh, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, uh, we've been in an Easter series. And I know most of us think, you know, Easter's kind of been and done and gone and that's past. But the events of the resurrection obviously play out in the, in the weeks that follow uh, just the, the resurrection itself. And so with Easter, we tend to dig in not just to uh, that Good Friday and that Easter Sunday, also some of the things that happen in the light of the resurrection. So today we're in John 20, 19 to 31, and this is God's Word. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came And stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. I wonder if you have ever had one of those moments in life where you come to the conclusion that you kind of had to be there, right? Either you are sat down, I was going to say in someone's living room listening to them speak, but we're not allowed to do that right now, right? You're sat with friends and they are recycling the same stories of school or teams that they played in or university or whatever, and they're going over and over it again, and you were the one person that wasn't there, and you come to the end, you're like, guess you kind of had to be there, right? Maybe you've been in that position, but maybe it's other things, right? At one point, I had bought tickets to go and see Idlewild play in Belfast. I loved Idlewild at that point in my life. Uh, 100 Broken Windows, Warnings, Promises, The Remote Part, they were all albums that I absolutely loved. So I bought two tickets for myself and Joy to go and see Idlewild. Disclaimer at this point in the story, okay? In trying to remember this story and in accurately checking the facts with my wife, Joy, I cannot confirm whether the tickets were bought for me and Joy or for a previous girlfriend, okay? She's a good sport, and she was like, it's fine to tell the stories, right? So the tickets were for me and Joy, okay? As far as the story goes, me and Joy, right? So I buy tickets for Joy and I, and we're going to Seattle Wild. 
And if you know me for any amount of time, okay, you would know that I'm generally an organized type, okay? My life is, I'm kind of one of those everything has its place and everything in its place sort of people, right? Except that it got to the week of the gig and my friends and stuff were talking about it and we were getting excited about it. It was on the Thursday night and we were all chatting about it. And a day or two before that, I just thought, well, I'll dig out the tickets, right? I know where they are. They sit on the end of a bookshelf that I had in my old room where I kept all the things like tickets and passes and stuff like that. And I go to find the tickets to pull them out just, you know, just to make sure they're there, except they weren't there. It's now Tuesday, show's on Thursday, it's sold out, and I cannot find the tickets. No matter where I look, they never showed up. In fact, I've now been through two house moves, right? And you know, it's one of those things you expect when you like lift books or something at some point in a house move. They're going to drop out. It's going to be like, there they are. They've never, ever shown up. And so it gets to the night of the show. I've broken the news to Joy that she won't be going and we're kind of getting over it, and I'm thinking, well, like, I'll just, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll be in the house, right? I'll cook food, we'll put Idlewild on the stereo, right? They're all there, we'll put Idlewild on, it's going to be great, okay? Except it was not great, because no matter how much you tried, you were not at the gig. And no matter, I mean, my friends were all, of course, like really sensitive types, really understanding. They didn't talk about how great it was at all. They weren't like phoning me with their phones there, like listening to the show. They didn't go on about it for weeks afterwards about how great it was. Of course, they didn't do that, right? Because the thing was, you had to be there. You had to be there. And I say that this morning because at the core of the passage that we've just read is this sense or this reality that for the events that played out, you had to be there. You had to be there. The scene is kind of neatly divided between two kind of sub-scenes, right? Two sets of occasions, one where the disciples were there and one with the one who was not. And Jesus has returned. Somehow, as unbelievable as the resurrection may be, he has, and he's there. And it's letting us look at questions about faith, questions about doubt, questions about believing. And right now, we're still in the events of that first Easter Sunday, okay? We're still likely in Jerusalem from John's point of view, these events. Uh, It's evening now. The disciples are together. It's been two days since Jesus died. And in lots of ways, the whole of John 20 is really about the restoration of different relationships. So as my dad was speaking last week on the first part of John 20, it was about relationships with Mary Magdalene get restored. And then the disciples as a group, and then finally Thomas. It's been a harrowing couple of days. Fresh in their minds would be the events of that Friday night, Jesus crucified, dead, and buried. The horror of all that they had seen. They would have been shattered by it all. They would have, what all they, all they had seen and then experienced. But not only that, how they played their part in all that had happened too. In his hour of need, Jesus was alone, wasn't he? He hung on the cross alone. And even more than that, Peter, who was amongst them, he denied three times that he even knew him. They were scattered and they were shattered. And I'm so struck when I read the passage again today at how even though they had so let Jesus down, this encounter would never make you feel that that was the reality, would it? They were broken, but now Jesus was here and that would change everything. We're in the final session 
of our little series unpacking the events of Easter this Sunday. And today we get to talk about faith. And so what's going on in this passage and how does it speak to faith and how does it speak to us today? Well, I just really want to explore two things from today's passage that really speak about faith. And the first is seeing and the second is believing. Faith is seeing, faith is believing. Let's just read the first verses again, okay? On that evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Every so often when you read the Bible, okay, you run into these moments where, well, at least I do, okay, where I'm thinking like, are you serious, right? And this is kind of one of these moments, okay? This, this whole passage is one of those moments because there's this phrase in both verse 19 and verse 26, peace be with you, shalom alakim, okay? That's, that, that's what it would have been, but we read it as peace be with you. And in some ways you think, well, that's exactly the sort of thing that somebody, like a really holy person or like somebody like Jesus would say, you know, they arrive, peace be with you. You know, none of us say things like that, but that's the sort of thing Jesus would say, right? And it would have meant something along the lines of bless you, or as one commentator puts it, may God give you every good thing. But really, it was a common, normal, everyday, Middle Eastern greeting. In other words, Jesus, who they just saw hanging on a cross on Friday, has walked into the room, and he's just said, all right? It's like the rough parallel of how we talk to each other, right? It's just a common everyday greeting, okay? He was dead. He's now resurrected. He somehow gets into the room. They're all standing there, and he's like, right? And he says it like three times in the passage, just, all right. I mean, are you serious, okay? The most incredible thing that that has maybe ever happened has happened, and he's just like, all right? And then he talks to them, and then he appears, And we don't know how he appears. John doesn't tell us. Does he travel through the walls? Does he just appear out of thin air? Does he sneak in? We don't know. John doesn't clarify in the passage. And in lots of ways, it doesn't matter. Because the key thing is that in one way or another, he is standing now miraculously amongst them. And he wants them to know that it's really him, okay? That's the first thing you've got to see in this part of the passage. He wants them to know that it's really him. It's really Jesus. It's really the same one that they saw on the cross on that Friday night. He shows them his hands and his side. The whole point is that the same Jesus that hung on the cross and died with the wounds to prove it is the one that is standing right there. It's not some spirit or ghost or what, like hologram? Isn't that like the cool things that like the Kardashians or somebody does now, right? It's not anything else. It's really him. This is Jesus. His body's still marked and broken from the cross, but also he's different. He's changed. He can appear like this now. He never did things like that before. He's the same, but he's different. This is really him, and that's what he wants them to know when he appears that that Sunday. And they're afraid, okay? That's the other thing you read pretty quickly in the passage. He appears to them now right when they are afraid. 
passage tells us they've locked themselves away for fear of the Jewish leaders. And in lots of ways, you can have sympathy for that, can't you? I mean, they've just watched their leader be executed by the most cruel of Roman methods. You could forgive them for being afraid of what might be coming their way, given what they've just seen. It's understandable that they're afraid, isn't it? Their heads are probably spinning Uh, They're probably just deeply fearful of of it all. After everything they'd seen, they're probably wondering why Jesus didn't climb down from the cross or perform some sort of miracle and just fix it all. After all, they'd probably had all kinds of doubts and fears that they'd never had before. But you see, that wasn't everything that they'd heard at that point too. Right at the end of the passage that we were reading last week in verse 18, okay, John, of John 20, we read that Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had, all of the things that he had said to her. You see, they'd already heard. They'd already heard that Jesus was back. Mary Magdalene had told them. She'd been there and she told them everything that Jesus had said to, the, to her, that she'd met him, he was really alive, the tomb was empty, it was really him. They'd already heard that from her, but clearly they hadn't believed. In other words, the fear of all they thought that was coming their way, of all they'd seen, of what must have been in their heads was greater than the testimony they'd heard from Mary. The story in their heads was greater than, greater than the story of Mary. And then Jesus was there. Somehow, miraculously, Unbelievably, Jesus was there. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. After all that had happened, how it must have felt like they let Jesus down at the end. Here they are still afraid. And instead of rebuking them, which is probably what you think he should do, Jesus does something else. He commissions them. Instead of rebuke, they get commissioned. And primarily he does that with his breath, okay? The word for breath, emphasize, it only occurs in the New Testament here. This is the only place in the New Testament. It's the same word from the Genesis account of creation in Genesis 2. He breathes on them, breathes on them with that same breath that brings things to life because he hopes that now they, will, they too will be themselves, but they will be changed. The word for breath is the one that animates life at the start, isn't it? He breathes on them that they might be them, but animated. And the interesting thing is that so often when we talk about the Holy Spirit in the church or at conferences or whatever, okay, we we talk about receiving the Holy Spirit in some sort of way of, of receiving some kind of spiritual experience, don't we? Some sort of spiritual high or maybe some sort of gifts or something like that, okay? That's kind of the way very often we talk about it in order to set us apart into some holier than thou club because you can now do this, that, or the other or have experienced this, that, and the other. But it's not. You see, the whole point was not some kind of spiritual experience, though for sure, when you follow the the disciples' journey, they had spiritual experiences, right? Or to set them apart into some sort of spiritual elite, though for sure, Jesus called them to live set-apart lives of devotion. The whole point 
was that Jesus had something for them to do. He breathes on them because he had something for them to do. You see, the thing he had been up to himself in Israel was now their purpose in the whole world. He was returning to the Father. That's what he told Mary in verse 17. And so who was going to take things on? If Jesus is going to the Father and Jesus' word is meant to go to the ends of the earth, who's going to do that? How does the message that he preached, which made so much sense in Palestine where the anticipation for the Messiah was on everyone's lips, they were looking, right? When you read John's gospel and you read the story of the gospels, there was almost like a fever pitch kind of readiness for the Messiah. The Messiah was on everyone's lips. They were longing for it to happen. How would that message spread to other cultures and peoples who aren't thinking about God's kingdom, who aren't waiting for a Messiah, who don't look at the world the way they did? Answer? It says in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews, from Israel, for the whole world. In other words, they do. Jesus is going to the Father, and now you are going to the ends of the earth. See, what Jesus had started was always meant to go to the whole earth, and now Jesus is calling the disciples, breathing on them, animating on them, to go and make a start. This is the wonder of this moment, because firstly, that Jesus needs the church. You ever think about that? The incredible wonder of the fact that the Son of God needs the church. That the message for all people would never make it to all people without the church. And then the second part of it, that the church needs Jesus. Without him, we have no message, no power, no light, no unique identity and purpose on this earth. You see, there's a difference between achievement and implementation, isn't there? Jesus has defeated death. He's set in motion the work of the new creation. He did it. He achieved it. That's not our role. But implementing it, that is our role. Like the musicians who get to perform the music that the composer wrote. Sometimes we get that backwards, don't we? Sometimes in the hustle and bustle of our lives and the busyness of family life and work and our plans and our dreams and the stuff that we want to see happen in our lives and around us, okay? In our faith and our purpose and our direction, it's all about us a lot of the time, isn't it? We do the achieving and God, it's up to you to implement it. I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, God, implement the things that I want to do, that I have done Whenever the fact of this part of John's gospel is that he has achieved and we do the implementing. And right here is the act of seeing. The thing is, though, it's not our seeing, it's his. Faith is about his seeing. You see, Jesus sees something in this group of people, the same ones who abandoned him, the same ones who were cowering afraid in a locked room, the same ones who didn't believe even though Mary told them. He sees in them something that they don't. I mean, are these the sorts of people you would commission? Like key strategic job, okay, change the world, right? Are these the people you choose? After all you know, are these who you choose? But Jesus does because he sees something in them 
that they don't see themselves. One of the big uh, hit movies in our house uh, over the last year has very much been the Lego movie, right? If you've not seen it, you definitely should. Parents in the room are probably like, I've seen it too many times. Perhaps I would be good with never seeing it again. Anyway, okay, the lead character, Emma, sorry, I'm about to ruin it, sorry. It's kind of my job, right? Pastor, ruiner of films, right? That's kind of my twofold role, okay? Uh, the lead character's called Emmett, okay? He is the special, right? And uh, he's the one who apparently has a unique purpose, okay? Except the only person who really believes it is Vitruvius, uh, voiced by Morgan Freeman, so therefore you believe every word he says, okay? He's like a wizard type, okay? Vitruvius believes he is the special. And they take him to the other master builders because he's got this plan to kind of change the world and it's going to make everything right. And in front of all the other master builders, he gets this moment to speak, right? Vitruvius sets it up, gets him up on stage to give a speech. And this is the speech that he gives, okay? Yes, I can't believe I'm about to quote the Lego movie. Anyway, yes, it's true. I may not be a master builder. I may not have a lot of experience fighting or leading or coming up with plans or having ideas in general. In fact, I'm not all that smart. And I'm not what you'd call a creative type. Plus, generally unskilled. Also, scared and cowardly. I know what you're thinking. He is the least qualified person in the world to lead us. And you are right. And the thing is, right, they all leave. If you've seen the film, all the master builders leave. They scatter. They clear off because they don't see it in him except Vitruvius. And here's the thing. In the moment that the disciples are in right now, every single one of them could probably give the speech that Emmett just did. And we could all give that speech too when it comes to following Jesus with our whole lives, couldn't we? When it comes to going after all God has for us, we could probably each give that speech if we're really honest. It's all of us. And faith is seeing ourselves how God sees us because he sees something in us that we don't see ourselves. It's knowing that when God looks at us, he sees us as we will be. Not just as we are now, but as we will be. Changed. Us, but changed. Faith is being seen. Seen though we're afraid. Seen though we struggle. Seen though we fail. Seen though we're weak. Seen though we're petrified of the future. Seen though we have doubts. Faith is seeing as we are seen. Seeing what God sees in us and all we could be if we trusted him. The first thing from this passage is that faith is seeing. But secondly, faith is believing. Faith is not just seeing, faith is believing. These are the next verses in the passage. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so... We get to Thomas, 
one of only a handful of people included in the English dictionary with a name attributed to an action. Other ones feature Nosy Parker, Jack Frost, John Doe, Peeping Tom, (laughs) who were all these people, right? But apparently, okay, we started to refer to a doubting Thomas sometime in the 17th century. So for for 400 years, People have taken Thomas and what he did in this moment and attributed it to being someone who doubts. And you kind of feel sorry for him, don't you? When I read this part, I certainly feel sorry. I mean, some of the other disciples get really cool names like The Rock or the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He gets doubting Thomas in the church, doesn't he? And it sticks. Doubting Thomas sticks. And yet it's not the full story of his life. So, for example, all the other disciples had heard from Mary that Jesus was alive, right? But it's not like any of them had believed. And it's not like we start to call them doubting Peter and all the rest of it, do we? But they had heard too. They didn't believe. And when he does believe, right, the phrase that he uses, okay, is identical to the one that John uses. He saw and believed is what it said in verse 8, okay? Thomas says and does exactly the same thing. And John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So the way he comes to believing is just the same as John's. On top of that, we have lots of other contexts for Thomas, such as when he says to Jesus in John eleven sixteen 16, that if he's going to the cross, then all of them should go too, And then in John 14, when he talks about doubts openly. In other words, doubting wasn't the full story of his life. It wasn't even close. He was dogged, courageous, determined, and he was honest. He never lacked courage. And we can have no doubt that he loved Jesus with his whole heart. In fact, one commentator writes that he wasn't there on that Sunday evening because of his grief. So shattered, so brokenhearted, he couldn't look the others in the eyes and he needed to be alone. And that's why he missed it. And when they tell him of Jesus, he refuses to believe. Actually, he's more of a skeptic than a doubter, right? Because they tell him Jesus is back and he does, he's just like, no, well, I'm not going to believe it unless, right? Which is kind of skepticism more than it's doubt. And for good reason, really, right? It's not like resurrection back in those days was any more common than it is now. It's not like they're like, you know, everyone's getting resurrected, right? It wasn't any more common then. If somebody told you today someone had been resurrected, of course you'd be like, what? Really? No way. It's not that surprising in lots of ways that he has the doubt and the skepticism that he had. He wants to see Jesus for himself before he'll believe. And then a whole week later after saying that, after he'd been so vocal about his doubts, Jesus appears. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 20 is amazing. Because it is these three stories of believing that run through it as you run through the chapter. First is John in verse 8. 
And we talked about it last week. The incredible thing that, that John sees the empty tomb, okay? He sees it and he believes immediately. He believed because he knew what he was looking at. He had seen Jesus raise someone from the dead before, so he knew what God had done. He took one look at the tomb and he knew Jesus was raised and he believed. He's the first believer. And then we have Mary. And she's there at the same tomb. And in fact, she's there before the other. She even sees angels, right? And yet, when Jesus appears to her, she thinks that he's the gardener, right? The Jesus that she loved, the Jesus that had so transformed her life appears to her. And she thinks it's the gardener. She was so all in for Jesus and for her part in the burial process because of what he had done in her life that she didn't recognize him when he walked in. And then he says her name, and she really sees him. And Mary Magdalene becomes the first witness. We have the first believer, we have the first witness, and now we have Thomas. And he's been with Jesus the whole time. He's seen him do incredible things. He's heard him speak the words of life. He loved Jesus. He was someone of honesty. He was someone of courage. But also he'd seen the cross. He knew what he saw with his eyes. And he refused to believe until he saw it for himself. And so here he is. And he speaks right to the point of doubt. If you track those verses, okay, verse um, kind of 20, 23 and 24, and then track them into verse 27, Jesus answers all of the things that Thomas said. All of the fears, all of the points of skepticism where he says, I won't believe unless I see this. Jesus arrives and says, look, here you go. Look at my hands, touch them. Here's my side, put your hand in it. Jesus is seeing much deeper to the heart of the questions and the ache that Thomas really had. And in many ways, when I read this passage, all I can kind of see whenever I see Jesus in this moment is him kind of standing there, saying to Thomas, look at my hands, look at my side. In many ways, I just see him saying, is this enough? Is this enough for you? I know of your doubt. I know of your ache. Is this enough? This is what love looks like. Thomas, this is what faithfulness looks like. This is what grace and mercy look like. Love did this. My love for you. You're afraid. You have doubts. Your heart is crushed. Here I am. Is this enough? Is this enough? And to a love like that, faith means knowing, believing in our hearts that what Jesus has done is enough. In a world that tries so desperately hard to make you feel inadequate, approximately 13 seconds of scrolling on Instagram will usually do that. You will usually feel inadequate about maybe all of your life, if not all of it, some aspect of your life, that it doesn't look this way, that you don't look this way, that you don't have this and that and the other. In a world that tries so desperately hard to make you feel inadequate, if Jesus is enough, then you are enough. 
And so all Thomas can do is respond. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. You know what? Thomas also has a first. He is the first person in the book of John to refer to Jesus as God. The whole book, he's the first one who refers to him, who he really is. And it's personal, right? It's not just titles or grandeur. It's a personal referral, right? It's my Lord and my God. In other words, he's all in. He sees, he believes, and he's all in. And so it is too with our doubts. Faith very often needs doubts. If you're here today and you have doubts, and goodness knows if you've lived in the world for the last year, I'm sure you have doubts. Faith needs doubts about who we are, about what's going on, about where our lives are going, about where God is, about what he's up to, all of those things. We need doubts. Tim Keller writes this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if he or she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Thomas is reflecting, and Jesus is right there. He sees Jesus. He sees what love has done. He sees that Jesus is who he says he is, who the others say he is. He sees that he is enough, and he believes. You know, sometimes I reflect on the difference between faith and believing, because those two things are really quite different, aren't they? The Bible, the New Testament really has a number of words. They all have pretty much one root. The one that you find very often in the Gospels, okay, is the word pistos. It means faith, obviously. Uh, And the word pistos is more like allegiance, okay? The best way to understand it is allegiance, all right? Faith is the allegiance of your heart, your whole life. And we read pistos most of the time in the Gospels. But the, the other word that is used is pistoio, okay? It obviously has the same root as pistos, but it's more like trust, okay? And it's the word that we read in when we see the word believe a lot of the time, okay? So there's faith and belief, and it kind of means more trust, right? One is like allegiance, the other is more like trust. And I reflect on them today because in my life I can reflect on how at times I had faith but not belief. Like that time you are in a desperate situation, someone is ill, You get that text message that says, please, I really need you to pray right now. This is going on. I need something to change, right? And in that moment, you have faith, but belief? I'm not so sure. And that's good sometimes, right? Because it it anchors our faith, right? In, In what we believe in truth, in what the Bible says, not just how our heart feels or how we might be afraid when somebody asks us to pray for them or whatever, right? It anchors us in the truth of God's word, okay? And that's good. But sometimes too, it distances us from the risk of really believing. It numbs us, doesn't it? It's safe to have faith but not necessarily belief. But other times, we believe our way into faith. 
By that I mean we can have belief in something that shapes the kind of faith, the kind of allegiance that we have. Like when somebody comes to faith, okay, so many times in my life, I used to work for the Alpha course before I, I did this, okay, and that meant I got a chance to be around courses run in all sorts of places around the country. And one of my favorite things was talking to people that had come to faith off the back of Alpha. We would do videos and try to get testimony kind of stuff from people afterwards. And one of my favorite things was sitting down and listening to new believers speak, maybe particularly new believers who had been like way off paced in terms of the church and faith and all that, right? And when they came to faith, they would have this kind of faith that believed God could do anything. Like if God can get me, if he can touch my life, there's nothing he can't do. And they would have this kind of like no holds barred kind of attitude towards faith. God can do anything. And if you ask them, they really truly believed it. They didn't have a framework for anything. When you ask them basic questions about stuff, they'd be like, I don't know, but I believe he can do it. And they would believe their way into a certain kind of faith. That is belief that shapes the faith that grows in us. And I say that today because that's what I think the faith in this passage is all about. It's belief that shapes faith. It's believing our way into a new kind of faith. Believing that like Thomas, we look at what Jesus did at the cross and the resurrection and we see that love did this. And you believe that you've never known a love like this. Believe that you don't have to be afraid. Believe that he is true to his word. Believe that you are seen. Believe that he is with you. Believe that he sees something in you that you don't see yourself. Believe that if love could do this, how great is the hope that lives in you. And let belief in a love like that, in a Jesus like this, shape the faith that you have. Faith is seeing, not what we see with our eyes, but how we are seen by him. That no matter what your life looks like at this point, no matter whether you have the kind of faith that you're proud of, or the sort of faith that you, you, know, you don't speak a lot about. You kind of bury down deep. You kind of live your normal life. And then there's just little bits where your faith engages with it, right? Faith is seeing as you are seen. Faith is seeing something in you that you don't see yourself. And secondly, faith is believing. Faith is believing through doubts, and you will all have them. If not now, at some point in your life, you will have them. You will face stuff and look it in the eye and realize, I don't have the answers, and I'm not sure I know where to put it, but Lord, I need you to meet me in the middle of these doubts right now. Faith is believing through your doubts that you can meet with Jesus, that you can know and truly believe in a God and in a way that will shape the faith that you have, not just today, but tomorrow. Faith is seeing, and faith is believing.